This morning's passage is from John 1, verses 1 through 5, and verses 14 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, good morning, Shiny Campus. Uh, I'm Tom Nelson, and uh, it's great to be with you. Carolyn, thank you for your leadership and service here. And uh, many faces I recognize. If I've not had the joy of meeting you, I would love to do that after the service. So uh, do not be shy. I do not bite. I'd love to meet you and uh, say hi. So um, tomorrow our nation uh, pauses to remember, as you are aware, the life and legacy of Dr. Martin or Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who worked tirelessly and sacrificially to address and confront racial inequality and injustice. As followers of Jesus, like Dr. King, we too are called to a gospel of the kingdom, one that speaks boldly to all of life, including racism and racial injustice. So would you join with me before in the message this morning in a moment of prayer? Heavenly Father, as your beloved children, we come to you this morning. We cast all our cares upon you because we know you care for each one of us intimately and passionately. We also come before you as citizens of the kingdom and citizens of our nation, and we come in a spirit of repentance for past and present sin, sins of racism and racial injustice. Help us to see ways we, through sins of omission and commission, contribute to racial injustice. Forgive us where we have been blinded to the plight of our African-American brothers and sisters and the structures that have perpetuated inequality and injustice and help us individually and as a people and as a church family to promote justice, peace, love, and respect, seeing every person as an image bearer of you. And may we ever be mindful of the prophet Micah's, Micah's timeless and inspired words, Lord. What does the Lord require of each of us? That is to do justice to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Now, as we open your holy word, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, the name above every name we pray. And God's people said, amen. Recently, I was having a conversation with a friend. And uh, he looked at me and he said to me, Tom, I don't feel I can trust anyone anymore. Now, hearing those very transparent words, I have to say I found myself resonating with that kind of sentiment. How about you? It's very hard, it seems to me, to trust these days. We live in a time of very heightened skepticism and growing mistrust across all fabric of society. 
the massive proliferation of online information and social media brings a dizzying array of information to our fingertips in nanosecond time, it seems to me. Highly sophisticated uh, algorithms driven by ideological frameworks and, yes, often political agendas, seek to exploit our cognitive and emotional vulnerabilities in ways humans have never experienced before since history opened. We hear with increased frequency and in great intensity phrases like fake news and global misinformation campaigns. So who can we trust? Who can we trust? This is, it seems to me, the unsettling dilemma of our information age. It is a daily irony each of us confront. Never have we had so much information at our fingertips, and never before have we trusted so little of it to be true. The more information we have, friends, it seems the less trust we have in that information. Yet the challenging reality of what is true and what is not is not restricted to the 21st century or our modern time. If we go back across time, across the terrain of time, to the first century, the first century people were not inundated with information like our time, but they were immersed in a pluralistic world with many, many competing ideologies and many divergent truth claims. What was true and what was not true and who to trust and who not to trust was a big first century challenge too. And it is into this skeptical historical context and cultural milieu the first century writer John emerges. And John asserts some astonishing and jaw-dropping truth claims about one person, Jesus of Nazareth. What are those audacious claims? Who did John say Jesus really was? This is the focus of the Gospel of John. And if you have a gospel with you in the New Testament, electric or paper, please turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 1. Now, last week across our campuses, we began a new series in the Gospel of John. We've entitled this series, The Word Made Flesh, The Word Made Flesh. And if you were with us last week, we explored the opening verses of John, chapter 1. And we observed in this literary prologue, this brilliant, inspired prologue, how John intentionally echoes in verse 1 of John's prologue, the very first verse of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. Let me reconnect you with that. Genesis 1.1, we read these words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now John 1.1 reads this way, right? In the beginning the Word was with God and the Word was God. So you hear this antiphonal refrain. John very emphatically repeats Three times in his prologue, in the opening verse, this Greek word, logos, it is translated word. Now, John uses this word, again, out of his cultural context, not to point to some rational theory of everything that the Greeks used to explain the universe, not at all. But rather, he frames logos around a person, a person who is the eternal God himself, the creator of all things, 
Now, keep that in mind. As John continues his prologue, we're going to encounter some more jaw-dropping truths that were stunning in the first century like our century. And he will frame around this word, logos, the idea that a person came to this planet robed in flesh, blood, skin, and bones, and that is not all that John asserts. Perhaps even more astonishing is John will assert he himself has witnessed this firsthand. That is a whole lot for a reader to process, both in mind and heart. And if it is true in the first century as well as the 21st century, it is radically life-changing to you and me. So in this morning, bless you, in this morning's text, I would like us to grasp two life-changing truths declared by John. And these are the truths that frame this prologue. First, Jesus is history's greatest miracle. And on the heels of that, secondly, Jesus is our greatest hope. So we want to frame it around this idea. Jesus is history's greatest miracle and our greatest hope. Okay, ready? Here we go. Bedrock truth number one. Look with me at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now notice how John logically progresses here in this text. He first says, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. That's the framework, okay? So three bedrock truths immerse around His literary logic around Logos, the Word, Jesus Himself, Jesus of Nazareth. First, notice the phrase in your text, the Word became flesh. The idea here is the eternal God took on human skin, flesh, and bones. This is a staggering truth claim. Think with me for a moment. In space-time human history, the eternal God became human in Jesus of Nazareth. Let that just sink in a moment. The late John Stott, who I um, would absolutely affirm, you read everything he wrote marvels at this truth claim. Listen to his brilliant words. He says, the Bible reveals a God who long before it even occurs to men and women to turn to him, while they're still lost in darkness and sunk in sin, takes the initiative, rises from his throne, lays aside his glory, and notice, and stoops to seek until he finds them. Think about what John Stott is saying. This is stunning. The one triune eternal God, transcendent, stoops in space and time and seeks. Just slow down and let that grab you for a moment. John describes again, now on the heels of that, the second idea. And that is a truth perhaps even more astonishing. John says here, the Word dwelt among us. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this text. In such an earthy way, he says this, He, God in the flesh, moved into our neighborhood. That's exactly right. The Greek word John uses here, translated in your English, tent or dwelt, literally, is a theologically rich word. It is used to describe often a Bedouin kind of tent, a home that moves, that is uh, temporary. And often in the New Testament, in intertestamental Greek, it is used of an actual tent. So you literally could translate this. This is the literary imagery that John is bringing to his readers. The eternal God stepped into time, and he pitched a tent on this planet in the person of Jesus. That's the idea. 
So in John's inspired words here, again, we hear the distant echoes of the Old Testament. There's a continuity here. And here he moves from Genesis to Exodus in Torah. In Exodus, God, His divine presence and power, if you read the Old Testament, you will know that it was manifest in space and time on this planet in what was described by Moses as the tent of meeting, literally the tent of meeting. So John is saying that the Word made flesh, His embodied skin and bone, can you imagine, is now God's tent of meeting. It's exactly what He's saying. Jesus was God's tabernacle where the presence and power of God was manifest in space and time. Uh, One of my favorite Christmas songs is uh, Mary, Did You Know? It was written by comedian Mark Lowry. He's not just a good comedian, he's a brilliant writer. But I love how he marvels at the mystery of this prologue, the mystery of flesh and blood, the miracle in Mary's loving arms as she looks down at baby Jesus. He writes, Mary, did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? Mary, did you know when you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God? And of course, if Mary kissed the face of God, incarnate in human flesh, then the divine presence and power of Jesus simply could not be hidden. So it is not surprising in your text that John says, the Word became flesh, He dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. This is the third bedrock truth here. Glory is a word used throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament Hebrew, it describes weightiness of substance. And here in the New Testament, it captures the fullness of God's comprehensive attributes, particularly the ultimate goodness of God. And notice, John frames that massive concept around two polarities. Do you see it? John describes the divinity of Jesus, His glory, and he frames it in the rich textures of grace and truth. Now, throughout the Gospel of John, keep that in mind, because you're going to see that emerge, okay? It is important to realize that the Gospel writers also present Jesus and his glory in the mundane, everyday kind of life, the normalcy of his humanity. John does not want us to miss this, that Jesus' glory is seen there too. Now think with me for a moment. Sometimes I think we miss the glory of Jesus' human, mundane normalcy. Can I use that language? The Bible presents Jesus feeling things that we feel right? As humans, doing things that humans do, working in a carpentry shop, Jesus eating, laughing, weeping. And what we don't see in the New Testament is Jesus having some kind of halo around his head as he walks down the street, no spiritual luminescence as he encounters people, not at all. In fact, the gospel writers will often say how Jesus is so normal. And they will actually describe him having a Nazareth accent, which To the intellectual elites at Jerusalem, this was Hicksville. So Jesus was very normal in so many ways. But there's also stunning glory of his divinity that sets him apart. And we will see in John's gospel, and I hope you'll join us for this, that John arranges his brilliant gospel around seven miraculous signs that point to Jesus' true identity, His full divinity and full humanity. 
Let me just give you a little bit of an appetizer. For example, John will tell us Jesus turns water into wine. That's pretty impressive. He heals the sick. He feeds 5,000 people with one little kid's lunchbox. He walks on the water. He raises the dead. And after stilling a powerful storm on the Sea of Galilee, the other gospel writers describe the awestruck disciples who say this as they see him when he says, Shalom, and the entire natural world responds. One word. And they look at him and they say these words. Who is this that the wind and sea obey him? See, John wants us to hear his words and literary tone, the clarity of his own convictions and the earnestness of his heart. John is saying over and over again through the gospel, keep this in mind as we go. I was there. We were there. Jesus of Nazareth, he lived with us. John was his closest disciple. He lived with him three years. Almost every day, we saw his glory. We received his grace. You'll hear this over and over in the gospel. John is saying, I know these are jaw-dropping truth claims. For Jew and Gentile, this is stunning in the first century. But he says, you can trust my words. They are absolutely true. Because his words are not just encoded in proposition. They describe a person that he witnessed an encounter firsthand. Don't miss that. This is the person of truth, John says. And later in his epistle in the New Testament, John will open this epistle and will assert that he firsthand saw it with his eyes. Right? The greatest truth is eyewitness knowledge. And John will say this, we heard him, we saw him with our own eyes, we looked upon him, and we touched him with our hands. Wow. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, fully God and fully human, is truly to John history's greatest miracle, bar none. And John wants us to know this overwhelms our minds. It blows our cognitive circuits, but now he invites us into the deepest longings of our heart. Jesus is not just history's greatest miracle. Jesus is our greatest hope. And this is where he goes in the text, verses 16 through 18. Follow along with me if you would. For... From his fullness we have all received, grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. He has made him known. Now, Jesus describes, or or John describes, Jesus' incarnation. And I want you to notice something really important. He declares in his incarnation, that the material world really matters to God. Now, this is extremely important to us, but it's extremely important to his first century listeners. Because in the first century, the Greek philosopher earlier, a philosopher named Plato, had left this lasting influential thought legacy that informed the Greco-Roman culture. Plato asserted that the material world was a barrier to human enlightenment. And he super-elevated the non-material world. So he diminished the material world as an impediment to humanity. And he elevated the supernatural or transcendent non-material world. This was woven into the fabric of all the readers of John. But notice John challenges that here right up front. 
The incarnation of Jesus tells us there is no devaluing of everyday material world that we develop, that we live in, that we indwell. Quite the contrary. John is saying, Jesus the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, not apart from us, but in the middle of ordinary material embodied life. Now hold on to that. From the opening verses of the Old Testament all the way through God's story in the Scriptures, we encounter the one true eternal God who greatly, consistently, passionately, sacrificially loves this broken world, this broken material world He designed and made. Let's remember Genesis chapter 1. If you're familiar with Genesis, God repeatedly declares after He creates each day, right, the material world good. In fact, in its crescendo, He uses this toad mode, this exceeding goodness, stunning goodness, His material world, okay? That is the stuff we in, that we encounter every day as material beings, the, the trees, right? The flowers, the birds, I'm a real bird brain, uh, and animals, and yes, our bodies, flesh and blood. Even after humankind rebelled, if you know the Old Testament, Genesis 3, you know that God's beautiful integral creation is massively disintegrated. But there is a fascinating place I encourage you to go this week, Genesis 6, because it's one of the most marvelous places where you have this intertrinitarian conversation that is reflecting on creation saying, I have creation regret. I'm sorry I made this. I'm going to blot it out and start completely over. But God doesn't do that. And go ahead and look at that conversation this week. Instead, what does God do? He chooses to redeem it and fully restore it one day. In Jesus, God came to rescue and redeem his badly material, broken material world. Don't miss that. Uh, one of the wonderful writers on the incarnation is uh, a guy named T.F. Torrance. And I want to read this carefully because he knocks it out of the park. He says this, The very act of assuming our flesh, the word, sanctified, it means set apart, and hallowed it. For the assumption of our sinful flesh is itself atoning and signifying in action. And then he writes, how could it otherwise be when he, the Holy One, took on himself our unholy flesh? Now, why am I spending so much time on this? Think with me for a minute. The very act of Jesus becoming human flesh, the Word, set apart and hallowed our material bodies and the material world we indwell. So Jesus' incarnation sanctified the goodness of our humanness, the material world, and all of human life now matters, every part of it. The incarnation declares to us Jesus is a cosmic redeemer, a cosmic restorer. This has massive implications for our lives. Jesus' rescue mission is not only to save souls, as vitally important as that is, but also to usher in his kingdom of a fully and one day transformed material creation, the new creation. In the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, Jesus makes this, the resurrected and glorified Jesus says this, Behold, I am making all things new. Notice Jesus doesn't say, Behold, I'm making all new things. Think about the scope of that for a moment. Think about what Jesus' incarnation initiated in this world. Do you see the connection? 
what it pointed to, what it will ultimately mean for this world one day when his kingdom will be fully consummated. Now, C.S. Lewis, uh, I mean, how do you get better than C.S. Lewis? I think all of us, I hope, have read C.S. Lewis. If you haven't, you're missing out. But I love his Chronicles of Narnia, right? You're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia? And one of my favorite is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And let me just capture, he, he's so brilliant in his theology and is so fun in it and playful. Uh, there's one scene, let me just sort of recast it a little bit. Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy find themselves in the world of Narnia, right? Uh, the world of Narnia has been put under a spell by the white witch. And one particular uh, story is they're making their way to the witch's castle, right? Ooh. And uh, as they walk along this broken world, they encounter some statues, who, uh, which are petrified beings under the white witch's dreadful curse. So Aslan, the Christ figure, in Lewis's framework, breathes on them. And there is this, if you've seen it, and the movie is fabulous here, in my opinion, uh, there is this kind of melting that brings all these statues back to life. But not just the statues of petrified beings, everything around them comes back to life. You remember that? Here's Lewis's description. Everywhere the statues were coming to life. The courtyard no longer looked like a museum. It looked more like a zoo. Creatures were running after Aslan and dancing around him till he was almost hidden in the crowd. Instead of all that deadly white, the courtyard was now ablaze in colors. Lewis, in his brilliant way, speaks a profound theological truth. And what is that? The incarnation of Jesus declares for all time that all of God is for all of the world. Jesus' incarnational mission is not to restore us from this broken world and get us to heaven, but to ultimately bring heaven to earth. Jesus, in his prayer, taught us to pray that. This is at the heart of God. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? I love uh, the hymn writer, Maltby Babock. She wrote this classic hymn, one of my favorite hymns, if you've been in church or you're familiar with hymnology, this is my father's world. And she gets this theology. She writes these words, this is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and the earth and heaven will be one. Earth and heaven will be one. It's exactly what John is saying. Jesus, the word made flesh, is a cosmic redeemer. One day he will make all things new. Heaven and earth will be one. But Jesus also is a personal savior. And Jesus puts on human flesh to make us new. Jesus came for the world, yes, but he came for you and me, his beloved image bearers. And this is the second bedrock truth of the incarnation. In Jesus, God came for us. God came for you and me, his beloved yet broken crown of creation. Now stop for a moment. Think how much that means and how very much God values each of you. He loves you so much and values so much, he became one of us to rescue you and me, to lavish on us, as John says here, grace upon grace. Philip Yancey is a wonderful writer. And he describes, I think, in one of his books, the mystery and wonder of God who came in the flesh in Jesus. 
He describes the story, he was tending fish in his aquarium. He loves aquariums, I do too, and so he's tending his fish, and he feeds them, he tries to take care of them, and every time he gets close to them, right, his hands to feed them, whatever, the fish dart into the background out of fear. And, he, and he's saying to himself, how can I let these little fish know that I really care for them? I want their best. And it hit him, he said, the only way I could ever do that is if I became a fish myself. And then he said, this is exactly what the incarnation is, right? The comparison is profound. Only God becoming one of us. His prologue is brilliant here, Yancey. Let me just uh, articulate it for you briefly. It says, the God who created matter took shape within it. As an artist might become a spot on the painting or a playwright, a character in his own play. God wrote a story. A story only using real characters on the pages of real history. The Word became flesh. John wants us to know Jesus came not only to relate to us, but to die for us. When John says here in verse 17, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, we get this glimpse, this early glimpse in the gospel of a full redemptive mission of Jesus, the Word made flesh. He was born as a baby in a Bethlehem manger, right, to die in a Jerusalem cross. Five miles away, you can see Jerusalem, Golgotha, the cross area, right from Bethlehem where he was born. And he did it, why? As an atoning sacrifice for your sin and mine. And he rose again in that Jerusalem tomb, defeating death once and for all. In order for that to take place, Jesus had to be fully human and fully divine. The Apostle Paul captures this brilliantly in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He captures the significance of the incarnation in Jesus being our Savior. He says this, He, God the Father, made Him God the Son, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we may become the righteousness of God in Him. In Jesus, God came for us, not only to save us from our sin, but to be known by us. Think about that. The Christian faith from the very beginning here in John's prologue makes this audacious claim, that God of the universe desires to be known. There's no other religion or faith that I know of that points to a God who goes to such massive length as the Christian God to be known by us. Christian psychiatrist and author Kurt Thompson, who was with Christ's community this fall, uh, and if you didn't hear his lecture, I would encourage you to go online. He reminded each of us that each of us, from a neurobiological standpoint, as well as a theological standpoint, enters the world looking for the one looking for us. And the incarnation of Jesus declares this to be true. There is someone looking for us. He came for us. He became flesh. He dwelt among us because he was looking for you and he was looking for me. He wants to be known by you. Now notice with me how John ends this prologue here in verse 18. See this? It says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now this word known here has the idea of a comprehensive revealing of someone's narrative. Uh, sometimes translations translate this explain or reveal, but the fullness is a full life narrative. That's the idea. So we may say Jesus is the narration of the triune God. In Jesus, he is the ultimate disclosure of the one true triune eternal God who longs to be known by us and wants to be intimate with us. Jesus has made known God to us. So if we long to know God, what God is truly like, 
John is saying here, take a close look at the incarnated Jesus. He is the best way to do that. John will quote Jesus later in his gospel saying, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus, God's incarnate Son, loves you so much, He came for you. He delights in you. He desires to know you and for Him to be known by you. The incarnation declares this hopeful truth that all of God is for all of the world and for all of us. When God became human, he became present to your pain, present to your struggles, present to your tears, present to your hopes. In other words, God gets you. The incarnation declares that. He gets where you are this morning. He knows everything about you. He knows what you are going through. He knows your heart, your longing, your dreams, your desires, your struggles. He wants to love you and know you deeply beyond what you can imagine. John says, Jesus is history's greatest miracle, but he's your greatest hope. So why did John write this gospel? Most New Testament books do not have the explicit purpose of his book, but John does. He doesn't want us to miss it, and it connects with the prologue. In John 20, verses 30 through 31, we hear John's purpose of why he wrote this book. And you will notice it's that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. So John wants every one of his listeners, every one of his readers to wrestle with this question. Will you trust in Jesus? Will you embrace Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Will you experience new life and forgiveness in him? John wants us to know none of us can be good enough to deserve it or earn it. Our new life in Christ is a gift of grace. So in this prologue, before he begins to unpack the beauty and brilliance and wonder of Jesus, our Savior, he wants us to ask the question, will you draw near to him? The one looking for you, will you delight in him? Will you embrace him? Will you learn from him? Will you trust him? Will you become his apprentice? And will you, like the writer John, will you share that good news with others? I'm very excited about our E90 initiative, and I encourage you to jump in with us across our campuses as we trust God, to be a church for Monday in a primary place where we are God's gospel witness is where God places us each Monday. So who can we trust? It's a really important question. Can we really trust John's words written so long ago? John says, you can trust me because I was there. And John ends his gospel with these words. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. John wants us to know that Jesus is history's greatest miracle and he's your greatest hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the brilliance of your word. Thank you for the beauty and wonder of the incarnation that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Father, in a time when trust is hard to come by, may we trust John's words and may we embrace the person of truth that is completely transformational in our life and our world. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.